Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, the former leader of the Proud Boys just got the most severe prison sentence yet for January 6th. His pleas for mercy fell on deaf ears as the federal judge who imposed the sentence said he had no indication of remorse. Plus, the world's two biggest pariahs, Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, soon to meet for an exclusive summit for dictators. But U.S. intelligence says that they believe they're plotting. And also today, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell returned to Capitol Hill as some of his fellow Republicans even are raising concerns about his health, what he could say behind closed doors to them tomorrow. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. He pleaded for leniency, and he ended up with the longest sentence of anyone who has been charged of the deadly attack that happened on the Capitol. 22 years for former Proud Boys leader Enrique Terrio, and it could end up remaining the longest sentence of all of those. During the hearing today, the federal judge, Timothy Kelly, who I should know was appointed by former President Donald Trump, scolded Terrio and said that he was, quote, motivated by revolutionary zeal while slandering the father of our country, referring to George Washington. He called Terrio the ultimate leader of a seditious conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government by force. I should note that Terrio was not actually even in Washington on January 6th, but that's because he had been arrested two days before the attack and was ordered by a judge to leave the city. Prosecutors say that he did help create a command structure, that he was in touch with co-defendants on the ground that day as the attack unfolded. He is now the final Proud Boys leader convicted of seditious conspiracy to receive his punishment. For more on this, let's go to CNN's senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez. Evan, obviously, you know one of the longest sentences of anyone who has been yeah. charged in the attack. And the judge clearly seemed to think that a stiff punishment was necessary to to deter future political violence. That's right, Caitlin. He mentioned the, the, the idea of deterrence, that the importance of the sentence was one of deterrence, so that the next time, the next uh, attempt at a peaceful trans, uh, transfer of power, which is something that was broken by the January 6th attack, at least we could try to rebuild that. And as you noted, uh, you know, Enrique Tarrio wasn't even here on, on January 6th. As a matter of fact, he was arrested uh, for some pre- previous uh, alleged offenses. And the, uh, the FBI, the U.S. attorney, did that on purpose because they were hoping to try to get him out of town and try to prevent any mass gathering of Proud Boys. Of course, we now know that that didn't work. And one of the things that his lawyer said today uh, in speaking to the judge was that, you know, he wasn't there. He wasn't in control of this crowd of Proud Boys. And he said, you know, that uh, Tario was not a terrorist. He is a misguided uh, patriot. And of course, the judge said, look, this is something that you, you argued to the jury and the jury did not buy it. So in the end, 
That's one reason why you saw such a, a stiff sentence for, for Enrique Tarrio longer than any of the other Proud Boys, the other four Proud Boys that were sentenced in the last few days. Yeah, he had that enhanced uh, terrorism penalty here. You know, as we were talking about the others who have been charged with seditious conspiracy and already got their sentences, Dominic Pizzola is one of those. He cried to the judge last week and then after he was sentenced, you know, walked out and declared Trump won as he was leaving the courtroom. But it right. seemed to be a very different scene today, Evan, as Terrio was speaking and essentially asking the judge to take it easy on him. Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, they all cried. Uh, they all cried in the previous sentences. In this case, uh, Tario kept his composure, except for when his mother uh, spoke to the judge. And she tearfully cried. She said uh, that she wanted her son to have another chance. She said, this is not the person that we know he is. Of course, uh, the judge also uh, said that she, he did not detect any indication that, uh, that Tario had any remorse. I will note that Tario made a reference to Dominic Pozzola and the fact that he stood up after the judge had exited the room and said with, with his fist uh, raised that Trump had won. Tario said, uh, you know, after this is all over, I'm going to leave behind politics. I'm not going to be involved in politics. And judge, once you leave the room, that's, you're not going to hear anything else from me. I think that was a clear indication or at least a, a, an effort by Tario to try to undo whatever damage or whatever influence from what uh, Pizzola had pulled uh, last week from having an influence on this judge and his sentence today. Yeah, and yet he's still got 22 years. Evan Perez, thank you. Sure. And for more on this, I want to bring in New York Times senior political correspondent and Trump biographer Maggie Haberman. I mean, Trump's Terry's attorney, Maggie, who was arguing today for that lighter sentencing, when he was making his closing arguments not that long ago before he was convicted, he was basically saying, don't blame my client, blame the former president. It's his actions and his words that were the reason what happened on that day. I mean, clearly the judge disagreed. The judge clearly disagreed because these are cases where people have to take responsibility for their own actions when they are convicted. And I don't think that's a surprise. I think you're going to see courts of law uphold rule of law. But it is not the first time that we have heard any defendants related to January 6th or their lawyers suggest that Trump is behind what they did that day. And I think you are going to continue to hear that. And that is where, Caitlin, and I'm not saying this is specific to this case, but just more broadly, this is where there is an issue for Trump facing liability for that day. It was something that his own aides warned him about in real time, that this could be an issue. And I think you are going to continue to see that going forward. Yeah, and what Evan was just noting there about the, the terrorism aspect of this, I mean, the judge essentially was ruling that basically that is something that could be applied here. He agreed with prosecutors that that could be part of the sentencing here uh, because of what Enrique Terrio and others did on that day, what they were ultimately trying to achieve. Trump has said he would leave open the door to pardoning a lot of the people who were convicted that day. I mean, does that, does the fact that domestic terror is now a part of this change that calculus, you think? I don't think it's going to stop Trump from saying what he's been saying. He's been fundraising to try to help some of the defendants in January 6th related cases. I don't think that this will uh, have him adjust anything. I'm sure his lawyers would like it if he would adjust some of what he's saying and doing. But I don't think for what he is saying himself, he sees political advantage in continuing to say that he might pardon people. He thinks that it, it rallies his supporters. What about the fact that, that his attorney is blaming Trump? I mean, do you think that could factor into whether or not Trump would ever, I mean, this is all hypothetical, but whether or not he'd pardon him? I don't think it helps in that specific case. But as you and I know very well, what Donald Trump sees as uh, beneficial to Donald Trump can change moment to moment. The other thing that we saw happen today was Jack Smith's team has issued this new filing um, 
as Trump's been posting links about the judge in his case in Washington in the same courtroom or same courthouse where Enrique Terrio was sentenced today, he's calling Jack Smith deranged. He says he has unchecked and insane aggression. And, and the reason we're highlighting that is because the special counsel today is arguing that those comments, which are happening on a daily basis, multiple times a day, could taint the jury pool. What is your sense of whether or not uh, Trump's attorneys are con- concerned about testing prosecutors' patience here, about maybe seeing sanctions from the judge for Trump on what he's saying. They're certainly aware that this is a possibility, that there is going to be a request for sanctions and that judges could take action. Now, what they'll argue is that this is infringing on Trump's uh, free speech rights, that he's a political candidate and that he, you know, has to be allowed to say what he wants to say uh, in that context and also that he's a defendant who's entitled to say things about his case. But to your point... That is a a different measure. That is not just saying I'm an innocent person. That is really attacking prosecutors. And as he's attacked other people connected to these cases over and over again, as we've said many times, he will test the limits of what he can get away with up until the point he can't do it anymore. Yeah, I mean, he's attacking the judge repeatedly. I think Jack Smith, that's kind of been a New York constant, but Mm -hmm. the judge who makes these decisions and has mm-hmm. such control over this trial, he attacks her basically on a daily basis. And she's warned him about not tainting the jury pool. So he is looking to see how far he can take this and how far he can get away with it. And we're going to find out what the answer is. But we've talked about this before, that typically in cases like this, when defendants are given a warning about what they say, what they post on social media, what they say in public interviews, they tend to be much more uh, circumspect than Donald Trump is being. He is just sort of letting it all fly. Yeah. Tomorrow's going to get interesting in Georgia because we've now seen all 19 co-defendants there plead not guilty. That means none of them will be showing up for for their arraignment hearings tomorrow. They've all waived their right to the appearances. But we will see the judge there, Scott McAfee, hold a hearing for Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheeseborough, essentially on their arguments about severing the case and whatnot. But what's notable is it's going to be televised. Tomorrow Mm -hmm. we will see what is going to happen. Do you think people being able to actually watch that? will affect how they view this? I think it might, Caitlin. I mean, I think that so much of this has been behind closed doors or or in a way that you can't see in real time. And it's being relayed through us in the media. And I think for the public to be able to see this, I think is important. I think this, look, I am very pro cameras and courtrooms in general. I think journalists generally are. Um, but I do think this is an important moment just in terms of people understanding what's taking place and forming their own opinions. It's going to be a lot harder for defendants in these cases to say this is going through a filter and this is somehow tainted in terms of public understanding when it's televised. And these are people who Trump is not paying their legal fees yeah. like in the other cases that we see. I mean, what is your sense of the calculus inside his world over? Of course, it's really expensive if he was going to, to cover for all of them. But if he doesn't, I mean, they could be more encouraged to to make a deal with prosecutors to cooperate, to try to get their sentences potentially reduced if they're ever convicted. I think there's a couple of things that have gone into this. We have seen Georgia be a little different in terms of how they have handled that case in his world compared to the federal cases and, and compared to the Manhattan case. So it's not totally surprising. Bluntly, I don't know what money there is to pay for all of these folks' defenses at this point. Save America doesn't really have a ton of money left. Now, How maybe much money have they spent? Ballpark. A lot. I mean, I, I don't want to get the figure wrong off the top of my head, um, but it's it's, it's, millions tens, it's millions. tens of millions of dollars on his legal fees. And um, on and the reason I'm just delaying is there was an, an, an error put out by folks around him in terms of how much was spent at one point. They actually overestimated it. But it's still a lot of money. His These trials are costing him 
I shouldn't say him, these trials are costing a lot of money for whoever is paying his legal fees and, and the, the fees of people around him. He doesn't even like paying his own legal fees, much less that of other people's. Correct. And so, you know, in certain cases, they have paid people's legal fees. As we've discussed here, the fact that they're not paying Giuliani's legal fees has been an ongoing source of frustration, except for one very small tranche. I say very small, $350,000 or so. Small that's not, that's not small. It's just case. small. It's small comparatively. Um, it's a lot of money in, in normal circumstances. But, you know, this is, a, this is a source of consternation about not having these fees paid for a lot of people. Jenna Ellis, who's one of the co-defendants in Georgia, has been very vocal about it. We will see whether that ends up becoming a problem for Trump. But the flip side is, if he's paying people's legal fees in a conspiracy case, I think that takes on a different patina. Yeah. What do you make of CNN's latest reporting about how Jack Smith's investigation seems to be continuing? We know they have the grand jury till September 15th. We'll see if it gets extended. But on Sidney Powell specifically and these efforts to breach voting machines uh, to essentially, you know, the involvement and the efforts that they had, not just in Georgia, but in Michigan and other states as well. I mean, the sense of just the, the investigation is still continuing past, you know, the charges that we've seen so far. Look, we know that uh, Jack Smith has continued to drill down aggressively in, in the documents case, the Mar-a-Lago case, and the January 6th case. In the January 6th case, among other things, there were six unindicted co-conspirators. Then there was separately this issue of looking at the fundraising with Save America. What this tells me is that he's looking at a broader range of fundraising, not just Save America and other efforts that were taking place. And I, that seems to be a, a bit of a newer avenue. Yeah, and he's been asking people about the Hugo Chavez comments that she was making and whatnot. Very public that she made those. Maggie Haberman, thank you. Thank you. Very much. Up next, two of the most dangerous dictators in the world may soon be meeting together in person. Vladimir Putin seeking Kim Jong-un's help with his invasion of Ukraine. And also, the Senate's top Republican back on Capitol Hill today. But now members of his own party are asking questions about Mitch McConnell's health and transparency. Tomorrow, he'll speak with them behind closed doors. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Tonight, U.S. officials say that the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, is in advanced talks to travel to Russia to meet with President Vladimir Putin this month over a major weapons deal, potentially. The New York Times, which was the first to report on this meeting, said that the deal could involve Moscow getting artillery shells and anti-tank missiles in exchange for North Korea getting satellites, nuclear-powered submarines, and food supplies for their impoverished nation. Officials say that the meeting could take place this month, with Kim traveling by armored train from Pyongyang across the border to southeastern Russia. It would be a rare journey for the North Korean leader, but one that he has taken before, back in 2019, as you see here. Despite warnings from the Pentagon, the National Security Council says they do believe negotiations between those two nations are, quote, actively advancing. Joining me now to discuss, former CIA officer Will Hurd, who is also a 2024 Republican presidential candidate. Thank you for being here. U.S. officials that we've talked to believe that that if they disclose this intelligence, that it, it could potentially deter North Korea from actually following through on this I mean, you're a former CIA officer. What do you what do you make of that strategy? And what would you do if you were president? 
Well, well, first off, this is not deterring Kim Jong-un. I, I would never have thought that I would say that um, two former presidents, Trump and the current President Biden, would be doing the same thing that Vladimir Putin is doing, and that's emboldening a nuclear terrorist. Right? The fact that you know, Trump sat down with, with Kim Jong-un, Biden a couple of weeks ago saying that he would be willing to sit down with him without preconditions, I think that all plays into Kim Jong-un's uh, willingness to engage with the Russians. This is also a sign that things in Russia aren't going to Vladimir Putin's liking. And what, what I would be doing under my administration is all the equipment and weapons that we have promised the Ukrainians, that the rest of our Western allies have promised them, get them to the Ukrainians as quickly as possible for them to, to continue their counteroffensive. Um, because this is a sign that Vladimir Putin can't do this himself. This relationship has usually been the other way around, where the North Koreans are getting weapons from, from the Russians. And this is, this is a, a statement of how bad this situation is. And then we should be helping the Ukrainians to double down. And I would even say letting them have the equipment where they can continue and do strikes inside Russia. Um, and we, uh, our administration, be very clear what we consider to be a, a preconditions for success. And that is the removal of all the Russians from all of Ukraine to include Crimea and the Donbass. You think that's realistic? It absolutely is realistic. The, the fact that the, the Ukrainians are seeing some success in Crimea, right? Um, and, and unfortunately, the Biden administration is, is trying to, um, behind closed doors, say that they don't think the Ukrainians should be focused on that. One of the reasons I believe that, that they're doing that is because they want to have a negotiating position potentially with the Russians and let them keep Crimea. That's a bad move to make. The fact that Tony Blinken has said that we want to get back to the February 22 um, lines in Ukraine, that means that the Russians get to keep Donbass and Crimea. To me, that's unacceptable. A true victory is helping them push out. But to your first point that you were making there, you were saying that the way that Trump administration and Biden administrations have handled North Korea, you think are, are equally doing it wrong. But they're taking very different approaches. I mean, Trump and Putin and Kim are exchanging letters right now in the lead sure. up to the summit. Trump and Kim did the same thing before their historic face-to-face -face summits. I mean, Biden hasn't even, he's never spoken to Kim Jong-un since being president. They have had basically no communication because the North Koreans don't answer the phone. Right, but, but, but he's also undermining his recent steps by engaging with the South Koreans and the Japanese. Uh, that We should be having these negotiations together. We should be including the Australians in any conversation. And this is one area where the United States and China could actually cooperate when it comes to North Korea, because the Chinese do not want a nuclear war on the Korean subcontinent, because that's going to lead to millions of refugees, North Korean refugees, on the Chinese border, and the Chinese can't handle that. So this is how we should um, be looking at this area. And, and look, Kim Jong-un wants to stay in power. He wants to be fat, drunk, and happy, and die you know, being a rich man. And what we need to make sure is that we contain him with all of our allies in that region. But what does Biden need to be doing differently on North Korea specifically? I mean, just saying he'd sit down with him, there's no sign that that's even close to happening. Well, I, I, w I wouldn't be talking about no preconditions. Um, I you would think, have preconditions. Uh, you would like have what? you would have preconditions. Uh, number one, you got you know the, the stop the nuclear. Uh, there's a nuclear program as is, right? When we're not going to have any kind of conversations if you continue to do testing. Uh, the number of tests that we've seen Kim Jong Un do over the last um, uh, year has been pretty significant. There would have to be a period of saying that we can trust that you're not going to be doing that doing the test. Those are two. Th those are two simple steps that I would take mm -hmm. before having 
before having any kind of engagement. Speaking of Putin, there is one thing that a lot of your fellow 2024 contenders are happy to say, to label him as, which is a war criminal. There is one, though, who noticeably is not. This is an exchange that happened over the weekend. Yes or no, do you I think that Putin is a dictator, and I think that there are open questions that need to be adjudicated by the ICCJ. We have an ICCJ for a reason. My job as the U.S. president is to advance American interests. So I think Putin's actions have been craven. Not much I will say, and I've said it all along. We have to get the facts before we get to the bottom of that. What facts do you think he's talking about there? Well, the facts are clear. There are tens of thousands of documented cases of the Russians killing and raping innocents, um, blowing up, whether it's grain storage facilities, apartment complexes, non-military equipment, uh, non-military targets. So this is very clear that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. And unfortunately, Vivek has said it himself. Um, He's only been paying attention to foreign policy for the last six months, and it shows. His policies are ignorant. He acts like he knows everything, but he's always wrong when it comes to when it comes to foreign policy. And it's dangerous to have someone who's running to be the president of the free world who is willing to kiss the butt of, of a war criminal like Vladimir Putin. It's not hard to call it what it is. And it's unfortunate there's people in that race. And if other folks, if people are afraid, your viewers are worried about that, then they, and they want to support someone who is not going to kiss the butt of dictators like that, Go to HerdForAmerica.com. But what about the numbers? I mean, he has gone up. In, in our polling today that was done after sure. that first debate, Vivek Ramaswamy went from 1% to 6%. I mean, your poll number, your polls have not changed sure. in sure. that way. I mean, are you out of step with where your voters are today? Um, I, I wouldn't say that I'm out of step, but $15 million goes a long way in, in, moving, in moving those poll numbers. Uh, I'm not going to discount the fact that he's smooth, but there's also a lot of people that are turned off by him. Um, I was recently in New Hampshire, and I don't think he's going to be growing those numbers uh, with college women that live in, in suburbs. Um, they've turned off by some of his, the ways he acts and the things that he communicates. And, and it's, you know, we have 9-11 coming up here, the conversation that y'all had. You know, this guy is, I think, running to try to be the, the chief gaslighter of the United States, where he says one thing and then changes direction in the same interview. Uh, to me, that's just, that's just unacceptable. Um, and, and again, the, the poll numbers are the poll numbers, um, but that's not something that we should be having in the leader of the free world. But what about the, the who could be the leader of the free world again soon, Trump potentially, if he is the nominee? Sure. In, in this poll, Republicans or Republican-leaning independents say, if true, the charges that he is facing across four criminal charges, they don't think are relevant to his fitness for the office. I mean, why, that's what Republican right. voters think. People, you are trying to get to make you the nominee. How do you how do you make that argument to make you the nominee if that's where they stand? If this poll is true, then the Republican Party is going to continue a 20-year trajectory of losing the public, the, the popular public votes. Um, if Donald Trump is our nominee, he is a proven loser. He lost in 2018. He's lost the White House and the Senate in 2020. He prevented a red wave from coming to power. And here's what I believe. I, like, if, if people are worried about those numbers, then guess what? 
we need you to vote. If you're worried about that rematch from hell between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, then those people that only vote in general elections, we need you to vote in, in primaries. We need you to vote in the Republican primary. Only 23% of Americans um, vote in a primary. So if you want better options in November, then we need you to start getting engaged now to prevent something like this from happening. Because again, America deserves better than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. That's one of the reasons why I'm running and we're taking the message to places like New Hampshire and Iowa. Well, Hard, thank you for being here tonight. Always a pleasure. It has happened again. A federal court has thrown out Alabama's congressional map after Republican lawmakers there pretty much ignored a Supreme Court order to create a second majority black district. So what now? The only Democrat who represents Alabama in the House will join us right after this. A federal court has struck down a newly drawn congressional map in Alabama for the second time after state lawmakers ignored a ruling from the Supreme Court and refused to create a second black majority district in the state. White voters make up the majority of six out of the seven congressional districts in Alabama, where more than a quarter of the state's population is black. The three-judge panel, two of them, who I should note were appointed by former President Trump, wrote in their unanimous decision today that they were, quote, disturbed by the Republican-controlled state legislature's actions. The newly drawn map created one majority black district and boosted the share of black voters in a second district from roughly 30 to 40 percent, but reduced it in another one. Alabama's attorney general says he is going to appeal and the case could end up full circle at the Supreme Court. Joining me now is Alabama Congressman Terry Sewell. Congressman, thank you so much for being here. Court-appointed experts, I should note, are now going to be the one who are drawing these three proposed maps. That's what they'll then decide on. It's not the state legislature like before. Do you have confidence, though, that they will be able to draw a fair map that accurately represents the state of Alabama? I do. You know, I have to say I was more than just disappointed that the state legislature didn't even try uh, to um, adhere to the Supreme Court's ruling. The Supreme Court was pretty clear. They said draw two majority minority district or something quite close to it. And as you said, it was one district, uh, my district, they took from 55% to 50%. And then they created another district that was around 39.9%. And definitely that's not quite close to it. But you know what, Caitlin, today was a victory for Black Alabamians, but also for all Alabamians, because what we're fighting for is fairness, right? We want to make sure that irrespective of your race or your zip code, uh, that every voter has an equal opportunity for their voice to be heard in this democracy. There's nothing more fundamental than that. And the state is now responding with the attorney general. They're basically trying to escalate the issue up to the Supreme Court. They hope that there is a stay on this decision Today, how do you expect or how do you hope the justices will respond to that? Because, I mean, obviously someone like Justice Kavanaugh is going to be a key person to this decision that is going to be made. Well, you know, the um, Supreme Court decision was pretty tight, 5-4, and Kavanaugh was pretty clear in his position as well. I really hope that they will reject the stay immediately so we can continue uh, with the process. I know that it's going, it's going to go on concurrently with the drawing of the maps. The special master has until September 25th uh, to come up with three different uh, maps. And, you know, Caitlin, the problem is 
it was possible to draw two majority minority districts. In fact, the Supreme Court had in its uh, evidence by the plaintiff's attorneys, 11 maps that showed that there was a way that you could have two majority minority districts. And so the, the blatant um, disregard for the Supreme Court's uh, edict, as well as this three judge panel was just, uh, you know, really unacceptable. And when I think about it, I, you know, it's also an insult to those of us who know that they could do better. They could have done better. And we're both from Alabama. We both love Alabama. But this is not just a story about Alabama. It's a national story, really, because we see similar legal battles playing out in other states, half a dozen of them, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. Do you see this as as a Republican strategy to hang on to to their razor thin majority in the House or, you know, how high do you see the stakes here? Well, you know, it was Frederick Douglass who said that power can see nothing without a struggle. And so this is this is a real fight going on now, because if we can get more uh, congressional seats by fair maps, by fairer maps, that will uh, affect uh, the, the, the change in balance in the House, uh, you know, and the House of Representatives. And that's pretty important. But for me, you know, when I look at just the bare bone of what this is about, we know that our our state comes has a long storied history in racism and segregation and uh, voter disenfranchisement. But we also come from a state of wonderful people black and white, who gathered around and tried to do the right thing. They marched in order to desegregate. They also, um, you know, marched irrespective of what happened on that bridge. John Lewis and those marchers marched and defied uh, real, you know, and really helped democracy get to where it is. You know, they say that justice, that the the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, but but it doesn't get there by itself. It gets there by courageous people like those plaintiffs that filed this lawsuit. Um, And I think incrementally we'll get there because this is really about political power. African-Americans make up 27 percent of the voting age population in Alabama. And yet we only have one of the seven seats. That's 14 percent representation. That is not what we need. But what do you make of the fact, given that storied and ugly history of courts having to intervene for voting rights in places like Alabama, that it's 2023 and this is still a fight that you're having? Yeah, but you know, as John Lewis said, you can never give up and never give in. We know that the pendulum swings right to left, that um, progress is elusive, and that every generation has to fight to hold on to the progress that we've made and to try to extend it. And so I see this as a further step towards progress in our state. If Alabama can have two districts uh, where African-American voters in Alabama have the opportunity to choose a candidate of their choosing, that to me is progress. And I know that it will affect not only Alabama, but we're waiting on Louisiana and Georgia, and it will have a ripple effect. And not just in congressional seats, because what this um, case says is that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is alive, well, and enforceable, section two. And so section two is about voter dilution. So even in Jefferson County, where we have five commission seats, um, I think that you'll see a lawsuit to try to see whether or not that violates the VRA uh, Section 2 because there's so many African-American voters in that Mm -hmm. county. It has a big effect all around. And, you know, I know that uh, John had some incomplete business before he left this great earth. And but he left us a wonderful roadmap, he and those foot soldiers. And what they said is that we have to be bold enough uh, encouraged enough to do the right thing no matter what and to get into some good trouble 
And frankly, Caitlin, we're in some good trouble right now. And I'm really hoping that the, um, the Supreme Court will um, quickly um, uh, you know, overturn the stay, this motion for a stay, and so that we can get on with the business of creating two majority minority districts in our home state of Alabama. Congresswoman Terry Sewell, thank you for your time tonight for joining me. Thank you. Speaking of Capitol Hill, Mitch McConnell was on the Senate floor today and was speaking. Many were watching very closely. This is the first time that we have seen him on the Senate floor since he publicly froze up last week for the second time. But what is happening tomorrow in Washington may be more telling about the minority leader's future in Congress. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tomorrow in Washington, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is expected to talk to his caucus behind closed doors about his health. Some of his fellow Republican senators have been raising questions about what is going on and what he's saying publicly. I think if you go halfway and you reveal stuff that doesn't make any sense, it just leads to more questions. Uh, concerned on the last, on the first one and the last freeze up. But since he failed now, he's, he's struggled. And uh, I hope he can continue. Uh, I'm sure it's still going to be up to him most of the way. There's going to be some conversation. Senator McConnell was back on Capitol Hill today for the first time since freezing for that second time on camera in his home state of Kentucky last week. He did mention his health only in passing in his speech on the Senate floor. Now, one particular moment of my time back home has received its fair share of attention in the press over the past week. But I assure you, August was a busy and productive month for me and my staff back in the Commonwealth. Joining me now, Jamal Simmons, former communications director for Vice President Harris, and Alyssa Farrah Griffin, former communications director for the Trump White House. Alyssa, I mean, the Capitol physician, they put out a note saying there was no evidence of a stroke or a seizure disorder. But I mean, clearly even members of his own party have questions about what's going on and, and if he is being transparent enough. Yeah, I think the leader needs to speak to his caucus. And I think um, here's the reality. We've got a geritocracy in Washington, D.C. We've got a lot of folks who are living, frankly, beyond the median age of most men in this country who are in high positions of governing. I think as far, you know, Mitch McConnell was voted in by the voters of Kentucky. I think a conversation about how long he's going to stay on as, as leader is important to have. And I think to start talking about what a transition plan would look like. Now, Mitch McConnell, I love him or hate him, is probably the most effective Republican legislator of my lifetime. So I think they need to think about who is ready to replace him and step in if he is going to pass off the reins the way that we saw Nancy Pelosi do in the House. Yeah, I mean, and so far, those who would be the most likely to replace him have said they're still fully behind him. But when he does go behind closed doors at his lunch tomorrow, I mean, what does he say to them to alleviate their concerns? You know, I kind of could care less what he says to those senators when he goes behind closed doors. Because I think the bigger challenge is, a, is, is one that faces the entire country. There's so many Americans who've lost faith in our government. They've lost faith in our leaders. Young people especially feel this way. I think that Senator McConnell is missing an opportunity to shore up trust in government and trust in our institutions by not going out in public and talking about what he's really facing. And I think... 
Um, we saw what happened on video. You can't just put out a letter. One of the you know, lessons of communications is you respond in the way the attack came. And, that, and what we saw from him is a video of him not performing well. Earlier on, um, on uh, Anderson Cooper, Sanjay Gupta, Dr. Gupta was on. He didn't seem convinced about the answer that the McConnell people are giving. And I think most people in America aren't convinced about it either. Yeah, I mean, what do you make of that, given he will also have his weekly press conference tomorrow. He said that's still scheduled. You know, he doesn't speak to reporters in the hallways, but he does talk at these press conferences. That was actually where we saw him freeze up the first time. I mean, I would argue that this these ailments, and I wish the very best of the leader, have not technically gotten in the way of him doing his job. Um, I use Diane Feinstein, somebody who I've said should step down, as an example of somebody who seems actually confused when voting, um, had to be like guided by an aide on how she should be voting, meant that it was holding up nominations in the Judiciary Committee. That, to me, is somebody who needs to probably immediately resign, especially when you represent the most populous state in the country. Mitch McConnell, I think he needs to be very transparent. He needs to answer questions for his voters, for his constituents, but also the American public as the leader of the Senate. Yeah. Let's remember what happened when Senator John Fetterman had his health challenges. He went out in public and told people what he really was dealing with, and people rooted for him. They wanted him to be successful. They wanted him to get healthy. Now everyone's sitting around waiting for the next shoe to drop on Senator McConnell. It's just a bad place to be. The other person we heard from today was Senator Tuberville. You just heard him there. But he is also someone who is facing criticism when it comes to his hold on military nominations and protests of the uh, Pentagon's abortion policy. He said today he's not budging on that. I mean, we're hearing from the secretaries of the Army and the Navy and the Air Force who were speaking to Jake Tapper earlier saying that this is a national security risk in their view. It's a readiness crisis. Um, It is a shame that for the first time in over 100 years, the Marine Corps, for example, is without a permanent commandant. Listen, I strongly support the Hyde Amendment, meaning taxpayer dollars should not fund abortion. That is not what this DOD policy does. It simply gives paid travel to people who may go and seek an abortion. I think it is a misreading of the policy by Senator Tuberville, and I think his Republican colleagues need to rally around him and say, we as Republicans are the pro-military party. You are actually affecting national security readiness. But He did make the point that Chuck Schumer could bring these up one by one if he needed to. I mean, that is not something that the majority leader has taken the step of. They say it is essentially giving in to him, but it is something he technically could do. Um, I'm sure Chuck Schumer could technically do that. And then how long will that take? You know, this week, so many Americans, like my family, were taking our kids back to school. People are paying attention to it. You know who's not able to do that, who's having trouble? A bunch of military families whose kids don't know where they're going to be, if they're going to be in the base where they are currently or the base where their parent is getting promoted to. we got to figure this out. This is, this is not, a, not a way we can govern our American military. Jamal Simmons, Elizabeth Griffin, thank you both for being here today. Speaking of an impeachment trial, not one on Capitol Hill, but it is underway for one of Donald Trump's most ardent supporters. It is pitting Republicans versus Republicans over allegations of abuse, corruption, extramarital affairs. More on the drama playing out in Texas on camera next. The Republican attorney general of the state of Texas pleading not guilty today at his own impeachment trial. Ken Paxton stands accused of repeatedly using his office to help a wealthy real estate investor and donor. In exchange, the donor apparently gave Paxton $20,000 worth of remodeling materials and paid for a mistress for the state's attorney general. As CNN's Ed Lavendera reports, 12 of his fellow Republicans agreed he should face impeachment on allegations that he abused his power. Just before Ken Paxton faced impeachment proceedings, which includes misconduct involving an alleged affair, Paxton smiled and hugged his wife, 
who happens to be a state senator and will be listening to the charges involving bribery, abuse of power, and retaliating against whistleblowers. But she will not be allowed to vote. This is a very significant and serious occasion that will be in the history books. Paxton stood with his hands crossed as his attorney said the suspended attorney general was innocent of all the impeachment charges. Those allegations are flat out false. The attorney general pleads not guilty. Paxton's lawyers went on to say in opening statements that Paxton is a victim of a political witch hunt and that his political fate should not be in the hands of state senators. Texans chose at the voting booth who they wanted to be their attorney general. Only 30 people out of almost 30 million will decide whether Ken Paxton is allowed to serve in the office he was voted into. That's not how it's supposed to work. That's not democratic. The lead House impeachment manager said Paxton has committed crimes that make him unfit to serve as attorney general. Mr. Paxton should be removed from office because he failed to protect the state and instead used the power of his elected office for his own benefit. The impeachment trial has exposed a bitter divide among Texas Republicans. Paxton has the support of Donald Trump and the extreme right wing of conservatives in the state. One pro-Paxton group known as the Defend Texas Liberty PAC says it will pump millions of dollars to go after Republicans who voted to impeach or convict Ken Paxton. This is a political witch hunt against Ken Paxton. Anyone that votes against Ken Paxton in this impeachment is risking their entire political career, and we will make sure that that is the case. As the political pressure mounts against Republican state senators, many are watching Senator Angela Paxton, who has long stood by her husband as he climbed the Texas political ladder, even performing musical numbers at his campaign rallies. I'm a pistol-packing mama, and my husband, Sue's Obama. Despite the lurid allegations against Ken Paxton in the impeachment trial, Angela Paxton is publicly showing full support for her husband, calling him the love of her life. And in the impeachment trial, she will be closely watching the Republicans who will decide her husband's political fate. And Caitlin, you know, we're looking for clues as to which way these Republican senators might be leaning. And we might have gotten a hint early on before the impeachment trial started. There was a wave of motions where uh, the senators could have voted to dismiss the charges by a simple majority. And each of those votes where Paxton didn't get enough votes, he had six to eight Republicans voting in his favor. But he needs 10 to be able to survive this impeachment trial. But the longer this goes on, the amount of political pressure on many of these Republicans to switch their votes and to support Ken Paxton will only continue to grow. Uh, so it is going to be a really intense few weeks here in Austin for Republican lawmakers. Caitlin? Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what it means for the Republican Party in Texas. Ed Lavendera, thank you for that report. Up next, there is new fallout from the unwanted kiss that happened at the World Cup and a big firing. Jorge Vilda, the head coach of the Spanish national soccer team that just won the Women's World Cup last month, has been fired. He was pushed out, but the soccer chief, Luis Rubiales, of course, the one who is facing a lot of the fallout from that unwanted kiss, his fate still hangs in the balance tonight. What we do know is that Monse Tome was made the first female head coach for Spain's national team, a former member of that team. We'll keep you updated on that story. Thank you so much for joining us. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.